study of the Psalms this morning. This morning we're looking at Psalm 118, which some of you may, may know because there's actually a kid's song that I used to sing in Sunday school about it. Um, there's other songs kind of in contemporary Christian music about it. We're going to take a look at really kind of the three parts of it. So if you would, please stand, if you're willing and able, as we read God's word this morning. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that it was failing. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter in through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to be looking at how God's love is an eternal refuge. If you notice from the psalm, there are several repeated phrases. The most intentional 
both at the beginning and at the end, is for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever or is everlasting, or however you want to put it, depending on what translation you use. And so this morning we're going to be looking at three different things that this psalm specifically speaks about. The first thing that we're looking at is God's love, verses 1 through 4. The second thing that we're looking at is God's refuge. So we're looking at verses 5 through 18. And in the last 11 verses, 19 through 29, we're looking at how this is actually pointing us to God's Son. So, several times in the first four verses, if you take a look, I'd ask that you take a look at the text with me. Several times, four times, in each of the four verses, we have this, His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love. If you were here at Trinity last week, you know that we learned the Hebrew word chesed. Do you guys remember that? I know you remember some of it because my children asked me at lunch last Sunday, hey, Daddy, what was that funny word that you said? Derek? Derek? No. Dada? No, Dada, no. What was the funny word? Chesed. So in Hebrew, particular letters have a guttural sound, and you have to actually kind of force spit up. So can you say it with me? Chesed. Chesed. Very good. I'm not going to make you do that again. No, let's do it again. One more time. Chesed. Chesed. Whenever that word appears, it is very, very important to us because this is the way in which God loves us. In Hebrew, this is the primary way in which God's love is described linguistically. A lot of you have heard the term agape, right? You've heard the term agape, this Greek word for love. The primary one in Hebrew is chesed. And this is, whenever you hear about God's love and his faithfulness, it is, his is never going to let go of you love. An unbreaking, always and forever love, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says. The type of love that will follow you to the ends of the earth. And here, at the beginning of the psalm, it's repeated four different times. His steadfast love endures forever. Have you ever caught yourself wondering, why does he love me? I mean, have you ever actually thought about that? I think this is something that maybe we experience individually with various frequencies. Some of us, some of us are navel gazers, are very introspective, and we think about this question all the time, right? I am one of those, some of you are one of, are one of those. Others of us, we never are introspective and we never think about things like this. But I think we think about this some in marriage, right? A husband says to a wife after, you know, screwing up several different times, I don't know why you still love me. Or a wife to the husband, I really don't know why you like me. I know that those conversations happen and we sometimes have those types of conversations with God. God, why do you, one, do you really love me? And two, if so, why? Because I look at myself and I know what's in here. I mean, the sin and the brokenness, if y'all could see it, it'd just be tragic. 
Yet, not only does he see what I see, he sees even more. And yet, he loves us nevertheless. Tim Keller said, God does not love us because we're serviceable. He loves us simply because he loves us. This is the only kind of love we can ever be secure in, of course, since it's the only kind of love we cannot possibly lose. I think we need to begin to correct some of our thinking. Sometimes we do get into the habit of believing that God loves us because we're serviceable. Do you ever feel close to God after you've been serving in Trinity Kids and one of the kids was just an absolute terror? We're not naming names. But you handled it really well. And you came out and you did something else to help out. Maybe you're doing the slides at the back. You have a good day kind of at worship. You talk to someone that might be a little awkward with you and you actually had a decent conversation and then you leave and you're on your way home and you're thinking, ah, I feel so close to God. And I would say, no, you were just serviceable. Those two things are very different. God doesn't love you because you serve in Trinity Kids or because you're in a community group or because you're doing good deeds. If that's the case, then he's just loving you for what you actually do. He is a giant boss in the sky. He loves you because you produce. But that's not sustainable because we don't always produce. If he loves us simply because he loves us, and we're not serviceable or anything, then we can't lose that love because it's not dependent upon us. If he has made his decision to set his love upon you, that's absolute freedom in the love department because there's nothing that can break that. Take a look also, look at God's love in verses one through four. Do you notice something else about this? It's all community driven. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say. We're talking about communities of people. The instructions in verse 1 to 4 is, you as an individual, give thanks to the Lord. You as an individual, give thanks to the Lord. That's not it at all. He's talking about communities, giving thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. So the first thing that that means for us this morning is that what happens here at worship is of the utmost importance for the Christian. Far over 90% of the imperatives, of the commands in the entire Bible are plural. They're not singular. You shall have no other gods before me. Y'all shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Y'all shouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain. It's all plural. And here, not let's say a command, a negative command, but a positive command, just to say give thanks to the Lord. So what we do here on Sunday mornings, I would like for you to see, this is not optional for the Christian life. The entire vision of God's people from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament is that you're meeting together to worship. Somehow we look at some of these house church things, let's say in the book of Acts, and say, well, that's normative. But it's not. 
What's normative is God's people have been meeting corporately once a week for 4,000 years now. And that's what God expects. But also, we have an application of this, a possibility here at Trinity, in something like community groups. A lot of times, community groups are there where we can say, I'm struggling with believing in the steadfast love of the Lord. Trinity is a place where we can be safe. If you have been in a community group at Trinity, you absolutely know this to be the case. You can come in with your struggle, and you can have a brother or sister say, I'm praying for you. Jesus loves you. He is for you. He wants the best for you. For you to be able to hear gospel implications in that. So it's God's love, not just merely to the individual, but to the community and to even to smaller groups in that. So we move in the text from looking at God's love. It almost has a very strange shift in verse 5. Look at it with me, to God's refuge. And this refuge in verses 5 through 18 really is refuge from two different things. And the first thing is distress. Look at verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. I believe that sometimes when we see words like this, this distress, we think about other psalms, let's say, that are written by David, and David's talking about the enemies that are coming around him and encamping against him, you know, when Saul was chasing after him for his life and others. This word, distress, sarar, in Hebrew, it's, it's intense inner turmoil. The New Testament can even use this word in a similar way in Greek to talk about, like, inward depression. The dark valley of the soul. And what we see in verse 5, out of my distress I called to the Lord. You know, sometimes the most desperately we call out to God is when things are the worst. You know that and I know that. It's very difficult to pray to God to really call out if there's not a particular internal distress. When things are going good, you know what you do? You do the same thing that just about most every other Christian does. We're happy and we have fun with our spouse or with our, with our kids or we enjoy our job or our coworkers. And there's not this internal spiritual angst that is boring a hole in us. But to the psalmist, this internal angst boring a hole into his heart is the very reason he calls out to God. If you are in a happy place in your life right now, I'll paraphrase Ecclesiastes, don't ask for a miserable place. And if you're a miserable place, ask for a happy place. I want you to notice something about five, verse 5, though, that should give us pause. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. In verse 5, we're not given the amount of time in between when the psalmist called out and the Lord answered. Because it's right there, back to back, it seems like the psalmist had distress, he called on the Lord, and then the Lord set him free. If we look to biblical examples about what this is, 
it probably wasn't an immediate removal from distress. I mean, David prayed against a particular distress for years in his life. The Apostle Paul prayed against a particular distress. He called it a thorn in his side for years, and God didn't remove it. We need to be careful not to take verse 5 here and say, if I have a distress and I ask God to remove it, then he will remove it now. If you expect that and then you don't get it, that can send you into a spiritual depression. God is not interested in the short game with you. He is not interested in, in immediately pleasuring you. You know, he's not Instagram or Facebook. He's in for the long haul with you. And sometimes that means delaying the answer when you're in distress. And this sort of thing actually corresponds, take a look down to verse 18. Even though it's in the next section, here it says in verse 18, the Lord has disciplined me severely. He has not given me over to death. You know, the Bible says a lot about discipline and makes a distinction between discipline and punishment, right? Discipline is what you do to your child. Punishment is what you do to a murderer. Two very different things. You do discipline to someone in order to make them a better person. And spiritually speaking, when the Lord disciplines us, the purpose of that discipline, quite frankly, is so that we might treasure him more. Sometimes our hands are held on too hard to our job. And sometimes discipline looks like us losing that job. Sometimes our hands are so tight around money, and sometimes the Lord's discipline looks like losing it. You see, his discipline can, can mean different things, but behind the discipline you see is not a frowning face, but a warm heart toward you. Because God knows the things that you and I embrace just by nature, they destroy us. And his discipline is to keep us from that. It's as if we are constantly little children running and wanting to touch the hot stove burners. And instead of touching the hot stove burners before we can barely get there, the Lord, just in the nick of time, takes out a wooden spoon and smacks our hands, knowing that that is much better than us actually getting a hold of the burners. So sometimes our taking refuge in the Lord is a way in which God dis disciplines us as we wait on him. Our, our bonds to this world and what this world offered are loosened. And we wait and we wait, but we take refuge in him. That's the point here. First, we're taking refuge from our distress and then secondly, we take refuge from fear. Look at verse 6, if you will. These two verses set out the rest of this section. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
And most of us know that song, the Chris Tomlin song about angel armies and fear or something. There's no way I could sing it right now and you all would be terrified. This is a common theme in the Bible, right? About not being afraid because God is there. Not being afraid of man because God is there. And you get, I mean, all sorts of wonderful quotes and things on this. Paul Chapel has said the fear of man strangles us because we can never please everybody. But the fear of the Lord frees us because it challenges us to live and serve for an audience of one. The underlying principle in the Bible is this. We obey that which we fear. We obey that which we fear. This is why in some of our families, the disciplinarian may be the dad, because the dad comes with a deeper voice and stronger voice, and the children just simply fear the dad more. Sometimes it comes from the mom because the, thing, the, the kids think, wow, mom is crazy, and she actually will destroy me, right? I mean, do you fear, do you fear, would you, would you be more likely to obey an unarmed cop or an armed SWAT team? I mean, we obey that which we fear. And so when we look at verse 5, or excuse me, verse 6, we shouldn't be flippant about this. We should really acknowledge the, some of the truth that's in here. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear to you. Do to me. Steal from you. He can destroy your reputation. Man can kill you. What can, the rhetorical question in verse 6 is not meant to the family. Either directly or an engineer messes up a brake line in your car, your house falls on you. I mean, man can do many things to other men, right? So what is it here in verse 6? Nevertheless, we're instructed not to fear man? Why is that? Because verse 8 says this, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. I believe this psalm and why it's so beautiful. The reason I believe it's so beautiful is because it answers this question. Why is his love a refuge? Why is his love a refuge? Why is his love a refuge from distress? Why is his love a refuge from the fear of man? The reason his love is a refuge is because he has the last word. Not men, not cancer, not disease, not depression, not anxiety, not a reckless sinfulness, not death. Our Lord has the last word. And how do we know that? Because this psalm simply says it in a more beautiful way than that. His steadfast love endures forever. Your anxiety does not endure forever. Your cancer does not endure forever. 
Your hopelessness does not endure forever. Your lack of money does not endure forever. We can fill in the blank with anything else there. And him have still the last word, my steadfast love endures forever. And so whether, whether Jesus returns this afternoon or whether we tear for 200 years and we all in this room pass away, you and I will rise into new bodies in a new world where there is no fear of man, where there is no disease, where there is no sinfulness, where there is no death, because he has the last word, because his love is a refuge. And so at this point, if we were to take a break, we could see two different types of people, right? To those who don't know Jesus, the greatest fear is death, or according to some surveys, public speaking. The greatest distress for many who are, let's say, semi-religious is, have I done enough to get into heaven? But to the Christian, though, God has already dealt with our greatest distresses and our greatest fears. Our sin has been paid for. When we show up at the so-called pearly gates, we're not going to be saying, well, I've, you know, I did good things here and did good things there. We say, no, I'm an absolute sinner in total need of your grace. That's the only way that I get in. And we know now, even as death, even as we all, at one speed or another, march to our deaths, that an eternal resurrection is coming. And it is more sure than the air that we breathe. It is more sure than the rising of the sun. Because his steadfast love is everlasting. The reason you and I can have confidence is because of this last section. We can be confident because of God's son. Look at verses 19 and 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Earlier in the Psalms, it says, hey, no one's righteous, not even one. So how do we do that? We do that through God's Son. Look at verses 22 and 23. These are quoted multiple times in the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In God's infinite providence, he himself became a man and entered into our distresses, entered into our fears, into a fallen and broken world so that he could redeem us from those very things. His own people, the builders, the Jews, they rejected Jesus, and yet he became the cornerstone for this new temple of God, which contains both Jews and Gentiles. 
and look at it. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes how he brought about salvation for his people. God's love is our refuge because we are loved by God in Christ. For those of you who have read much of the New Testament, you see this word, this phrase, in Christ, repeated actually more than 140 times, in him, in him. What does that mean? What does that mean for this? I brought props. So what we have is a jar with what I will call a one-way valve in it. It's not one way, but please go with me for the sake of the illustration. Everything that you and I have is found in Jesus. All of our benefits of Christ are found in him. So for instance, think about your calling to Jesus. Your being born again, your regeneration, your faith to even believe in Jesus, your justification where you were declared not guilty and righteous before the Father, your adoption as a son or daughter of God, that's in Christ too, your guaranteed sanctification that you will grow more like Jesus as you go on. This is a long one. Your resurrection from the dead, that's in Jesus too. That's hard to get in Jesus. <laughs> Only in the illustration, though. Your glorification, that you will be like him. That's in Jesus. And you, once you, let's say, pass through the one-way valve, you are in Jesus. And all of those things are forever yours. All forever yours because you were in and I said, it's a one-way valve, because look at this. Whereas you can't get out even if you tried. The Lego person is trying. They can't get out. But you know what? Others can get in. And others can get in, calling on the name of Jesus. So that you have an entire people wound up in the very life and nature of Christ himself, who have all of these benefits— and who gets the last word? He does. His steadfast love is everlasting. You know, there's a great way to illustrate this just in closing. There are a lot of people who are famous for last words. Different rockers have had very different last words. The most encouraging I know of comes from the composer Johann Sebastian Bach. His last words on his deathbed were this, don't cry for me, for I go to where music is born. Brothers and sisters, whatever our distress, whatever our fear, it will not have the last word because we go to where steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, Massage this into our hearts. Enable us to believe. Help us to see that our distresses and our fears, they will not have the last word. 
and even sometimes our frail responses to them. They don't have the last word, but that you do. That you have promised those in Christ in eternity with you, in new and glorious bodies on this very earth, raised from the dead to sin no more, to evermore worship and praise you. Father, help us to believe this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen.